Hello, everybody. On the eve of the U.S. Open, episode 283 today. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and we're lucky to have with us uh, on the eve of the, the U.S. Open, Nick Matthew, former world number one, and many thanks to him. This is, I think, could be his third appearance on the pod, and we're going to break the Open down a little bit uh, amongst many other things, and of course, among those things is taking a look back at Nick's illustrious career, and one of the uh, areas I want, really wanted to look at is, uh, is uh, when he hit the scene back in the mid-2000s, uh, mid maybe around 2005, 2006. Uh, it was a period in the game where there were so many guys vying for that top spot at least eight to ten and uh, we talk about that generation we also talk about his uh, his experience playing uh, the likes of Remy Asher and what it was like to play him and what a talent he was amongst many other things now uh, episode 282 which just dropped it was my return ep from having taken a few uh, weeks off over the summer vacay uh, was with a Jamie Maddox and it seemed to rile up a few listeners in terms of uh, his stance on the Mustafa Saul saga. And uh, in responding to most who reached out, I simply just stated that Nick will be coming on and uh, perhaps he'll have a more objective outlook. And uh, for that, uh, I'm really looking forward to that as well. Uh, his take on, on uh, the assault situation amongst uh, many other things, including uh, how he sees the U.S. Open on the men's and women's side playing out. So lots to look forward to today with the great Nick Matthew. But before we get started with Nick, let's talk about our tremendous sponsor, Open Squash. Now, uh, their newest New York City location, the Fidei location, is opening this month. They have a prime location. It's uh, on 100 Pearl Street there in New York City. Uh, eight new courts, including a glass court for daily use and for PSA tournaments, so they have that in Hopper as well. Lessons in training, if you look at the uh, the lineup of coaches that they have over at Open Squash, it's a, it looks like uh, that would be a great place to get to, to start your squash or to, uh, to get some lessons, get some training. And they have clinics and lessons for all levels, plus a junior academy for ages 5 to 18. They have a, a fitness center at the FIDI location and a designated area for squash-centric fitness training. And uh, once you're all through with your squash and, and your training, head to the rooftop lounge and enjoy views of lower Manhattan and the Hudson River. So if you want to check this out and everything else that's going on at Open Squash, check it out at www.opensquash.org. And now we're on to episode 283. Really happy to have him back on on the eve of the U.S. Open, the great Nick Matthew. Um, that's all good. Gonna have, to work, gonna have to work on the hair a little bit. And uh, I know, me too. That's what I thought. I just <laughs> look like I've been dragged. I've just been catching up on admin today, so I look like I've been dragged through the hedge backwards a bit. So, you know, you look all right, man. You look like you're uh, ready to roll there. Yeah, well, <laughs> whatever that means these days. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for your time today, Nick. And uh, it looks like uh, you've got, you know, your work cut out for you today. Busy day, you, and then you managed to fit this in. So, uh, <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> Yeah, how's everything going just in general? Life is good? Life is good, yeah. Um, both kids at school now, so kind mm. of adapting to another new normal. Um, what else? How, yeah, old just... your, how old are your kids? Because I remember uh, back during the COVID when you did your uh, your at-home training sessions and you had those up <laughs> online. I, I was following you 
uh, then. And I still actually do a few of the, the things that you were, were putting us through, still include that in my training a bit. But uh, I think you had one, the, your daughter, I don't know if you have two girls or a boy and a girl, but uh, yeah, girl. that was a toddler back then. I think and she must be about seven now, six or seven. My girl is nine, oh believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my girl is nine and my boy is four. Okay. Okay. Yeah, mine so, at the back at that time, uh, they were, uh, I had one just finishing high school and one just starting high school. And now one graduate has graduated from university. The other one's first year university. So, wow. Time flies. Woo. <clears throat> Indeed, yeah, it's a bit scary. Um, but yeah, both which both at school now, which sort of gives us um, a little bit of breathing space. Uh, but you know, you don't want to wish away that time because, like, say they'll be at university before you know it, and then you won't see them at all. Yep, that's the that's the boat I'm in. The nest is empty. I've got the dog. Uh, hopefully, she behaves. But uh, no, yeah, so yeah, no, it's all good. Um, and then yeah, keeping busy the sort of the league see like the season, the league matches which sort of symbolise the main body of the sort of UK season and whatnot have just started. So um getting back to playing a little bit of competitive squash as well. And yeah, it's good, good fun. That's fantastic. Well, uh, you know, we'll get right into this. Uh, there's uh, there's a lot I'd love to uh, sort of pick your brain on, and there's a lot going on. And, uh, you know, first of all, uh, you just mentioned it. Uh, I mean, obviously, you you still compete at, at a pretty high level in the leagues. So what's life, uh, what's it like for you now as a player uh, compared to the intensity of, uh, you know, playing on the PSA tour at the highest level? I mean, you're still you know, you're still doing well uh, in in league matches, I'm sure. But uh, do you still have that that competitive the competitive juices flowing there? And uh, what, what's it like now compared to what you were used to uh, there on the tour? Oh, I mean, it's it's very different. You know, I always um, I think no matter what age or what level you're at, right? One thing we all share in common is you should always give your absolute best every time you go on the court. Otherwise, there's no point in doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, what that looks like for every person is, of course, somewhat different. And it's it's definitely different for me now than it was a few years ago. But I, I thoroughly enjoy playing for my home club, Hallamshire, in the Yorkshire League. Um, we won the title last season for the first time in the club's history, um, oh, which, was, which was probably aided. I think I played 16 of the 18 matches, whereas even when I was playing properly I was I was only usually available for four or five you know so obviously that's a considerable increase in, in you know and those, those leagues are tend to be won by the team that has the greatest availability of kind of depth players rather than necessarily having the strongest one-off team if that makes sense the highest ranked players it's always won by those really solid, the teams that have those really solid sort of club county standard players, but who are available every week, the store. So I've become a, a league stalwart now at the, at the ripe old age of 42, 43. Okay. Yeah. But you're probably, I mean, uh, you weren't throughout your career, correct me if I'm wrong, you weren't riddled with injury, maybe towards the end of it. But, uh, but I mean, you must be fairly you know, relatively fit now anyways, aren't you? Ooh, yeah, I, I mean, 
relatively you know i think my definition of fit has definitely changed um okay. i think i'm healthy touch wood um not necessarily fit i think um i'm kind of gym fit the body feels in okay nick but you know i've played the likes of sort of simon herbert in league recently and you know those guys are, uh, are pretty you know they feel too fast uh, for me these days so i don't feel particularly fit at their level so yeah it's a relative it's a relative term well that begs the question because that i mean that's an issue i face uh, i'm in my 50s but i tend to struggle against uh, the the younger guys and exactly it feels too fast for me obviously you want to go out there and play old man squash which is lift the ball and that that was i mean your bread and butter to a certain degree when you were number one in the world anyway. So that's yeah, of... definitely throwing, um, <laughs> throwing a bit of height, you know, I've always done that, but um, yeah, you know, obviously for that to be truly effective, it kind of has to be mixed in with some good kind of tempo as well. Cause then you get the contrast and, and whatnot. But um, no, I think injuries wise, look, I think as long as it's no fun playing for anyone at any level, if you've got injuries, uh, I was quite fortunate throughout my career. I had one serious injury, which was a shoulder yeah, yeah. Um, back in 2008, um, which did keep me out for a long time. But um, I had a couple of, you know, I had three surgeries, two knees, meniscus on each side, but they were relatively short and, and you know, touch wood recovered well. And, it was probably only really towards the end where I had that feeling of what next, you know, it was stop, start. The training was always feeling like it was, you know, you're on a knife edge between staying healthy or having a niggle. And and actually in many ways, I've, with my psyche, a lot of athletes' psyche, I find that's sometimes harder to cope with than a bad injury where at least you know you're out and you've got a little bit of clarity to the situation, you know. Um I coached Declan James and he's just playing his first tournament next week, coming back from Achilles surgery. And, you know, Declan has been unbelievable in terms of how level-headed he's been. And and actually, of course, you would never wish to be out for nine months like he's been. But he because it was such a bad injury, he had clarity from the beginning. You know, he knew that that was what it was going to be. There was no, you know, there was no second-guessing that. There was no alternative solution um it was that as a minimum so i think sometimes when you have an injury that keeps you out for a few weeks or something it can actually drag on and affect you for upwards of six months because you never quite give it enough time to settle and you're always trying to come back to competition and that often can be worse for an athlete that you feel like you're not 100 percent. whereas sometimes if you're injured you can actually in a weird sort of way cope with that better yeah yeah yeah, he's uh, actually it's ironic. I reached out to Declan uh, today. Actually, uh, I didn't. I didn't realize he was. I know I'd seen some footage of him lately playing and training, which uh, which uh, to me was a good sign. I thought maybe he's on his way back. But uh, how is he looking? Uh, oh, fabulous! You know, um, he's got his first tournament um, going to Qatar next week, and the big thing for Declan now is not to put too much pressure on himself. You know, it's very different training well and then going into a competition you've got all those different preparation things that you've not done in such a long time and the you know perhaps the nerves and the different adrenalines and playing a, a proper match is is very very different so you know he's, he's still he's been unbelievably patient throughout the whole process I, I actually said to him the other week oh well earlier on in the process actually that you know you're allowed to be 
um, peed off about this. You know, you're allowed to have a bad day because he didn't seem to ever have one. It was just incredible how level-headed, he's a very level-headed guy anyway, but just incredible how he stayed level-headed there throughout this whole process. And he, he sort of deserves a lot of sort of success now when coming back. But, um, you know, of course, has to stay patient now, even when he's back. Yeah, he was one of the. I mean, he's one of these guys too. Like whenever I watched play, he it was always so clean and always so you know he was always such a you know sportsman out there. He he yeah enjoys his squash, and he he's got some great skills, great hands. Lovely player, good guy, and yeah. yeah let's see, you know, like he, kind of a second coming now, and you know, like say no pressure on deck, and let's see what let's see kind of if he can get back out there, and you know, and uh, you know upset a few people, and in 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 a in a squash sense, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now, Nick, I, I've got, uh, I'd love to pick your brain on the US Open coming up and a few other things. But before before we go there, if you don't mind, um, uh, I want to look back a little bit uh, at your career, because I, I know you've been on before and I've talked, we, we've talked quite a bit about that. But, uh, you know, in 2006, I think this uh, uh, should be uh, something we talk about here. You won the British Open, becoming the first, I think it was, you were the first Englishman to win it since the 1930s. I didn't realize that. And, and it's such a long time uh, You when you beat Terry uh, Linku in, a, in a, an extremely uh, close five-game match. So, uh, And then you won it three times, I think, uh, overall over six years, if I'm not mistaken. So that first one must have been special. So what what do you remember about that first win? And did you uh, did you know the history uh, behind that? Like when you sort of when you got close uh, to winning it? Yeah. Um, wow, it's such a long time ago. Now two thousand six. You know, scary to think. You know, scary to think that seventeen years have gone past. Uh, and um, in some senses, it feels like yesterday, and but in other senses, it feels like a lifetime ago. You know, so. 17 years wow and um yeah i i think it was 67 years um since an englishman had won it um and of course you don't go into an event knowing anything like that it you know i kind of got through to the final a little bit under the radar i knew i was going in in good form i'd won a warm-up event the week before that all of the top guys were in um a grand prix event and but you kind of didn't know, are they taking that seriously? Are they looking to peak a bit next week? But, you know, I took a lot of confidence from that and ended up in the final against Thierry. And uh, he definitely had a sort of harder run through of it in the draw than I did. I think he be, um, you know, I think he had Peter Nichol, Lee Beachel, uh, or maybe Gaultier, and then uh, Lee Beachel and Peter. He played David Palmer, I know, in the semifinals, but he had three back-to-back five-setters <laughs> to get to the final. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if it had just been me against Linku at that time, he would have probably been heavy favourite. But I think with his with his sort of route to the final, you know, it was definitely probably seen as a chance, a big opportunity. And then, of course, because of that, you get everyone telling you on the morning, you go down to your practice and, did you know that an Englishman's not won this for 67 years? Which, <laughs> which, of course, is... Is nice, but it's not very helpful. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, you don't want to be have you don't want to have that on your mind uh, along with no, uh, absolutely the- not. You want to you want to break anyone. Or it sounds very cliche, but anyone who's been in that position will tell you you want to break that down into as 
manageable sort of chunks that you can, you know, go back to, you know, the processes kind of thing that you hear a lot of psychologists talk about, like, you know, doing your normal routine on the day, which is your same practice and then have your same, go to the same probably place that you ate yesterday for lunch and then have your nap at the same time and get and, and so on and so forth. Your usual warm up, just try to really normalize the situation. Of course, it was the biggest match of my career uh, up until that moment. There's no escaping that, but sort of trying to use maybe the added um, adrenaline or, you know, you, anytime you're in a big match, you get that extra adrenaline, those extra nerves, but trying to sort of use them as a powerful weapon to perform at your best rather than to drown you, I think was the balance I was trying to have. So really to normalise it. But I remember then getting into about, I think I was 2-1 down and I felt probably like the occasion was playing me um, rather than the other way around. You know, I had big crowds had come down from Sheffield, from Derby, from Nottingham to support. And I felt it, to be fair. And really probably went back to those processes again. I remember just telling myself, just get my feet moving. I felt like I was a bit lead-footed, like a little bit kind of slow off the tee and heavy-legged when you get the nerves um, running through your system. And I just told myself, get on your toes, get your feet moving and sort of managed to get the pace up a little bit, won the fourth and then halfway through the fifth, sort of Thierry seemed to feel those earlier matches caught up with him a little bit and I managed to sort of see it through. Um but I, whenever I talk about that match, I always talk about, you know, it's very easy to complicate these things. And actually, it was in the moment, it was the simplest bit of advice that I told myself that made the difference. And that was move my feet. And, yeah. you know, you you probably get told that when you're nine years old, when you play squash for the first time. So I always think that at an elite level, I always find that fascinating that those those simple nuggets are what you kind of fall back on. Mm. Uh, is that something that, you know, as a coach now, is that something that maybe you, you try to apply in those situations in, in not not when you're coaching per se, but during during matches, like try to get get a player to keep it simple and play to his strengths? You have to, you know, you, you, you're almost sometimes as a coach guilty of trying to over justify your position. You know, I want to tell you something, Jerry, that you don't already know and it sounds special that no one else will tell you or, and you, you know, you, if you're not careful, you can, you can go down that rabbit hole, which is kind of not healthy. And the key thing is having that relationship with a player so that then when you do keep it really simple, they trust that. And, you know, they don't just think, well, flipping out, I knew that myself or anyone can tell me that, you know, it's the other stuff that's perhaps gone on behind door, behind closed doors has built you to that point that then you can tell, Declan or Nick Wall or whoever it is that you work with, you can say, you know, just keep your feet moving. And actually, they know exactly what you mean because of all the hours that have gone on. Yeah. All the intricacies that you guys have put in uh, in terms of football beforehand. We could all be guilty of trying to over-justify our, you know, I guess what the players players pay you or your kind of status as as, as the supposed expert. And it's definitely always worthwhile reminding yourself to uh, keep it simple, stupid. Yes, exactly. I, I think it's true. I mean, uh, when you're on court, and like you like you just said, your match uh, against uh, Thierry there, you had that extra baggage bringing it onto the court with the, the history and all of this stuff. That probably weighed you down and, and overcomp- maybe overcomplicated things mentally for you. And uh, 
you managed to uh, overcome that uh, by just forgetting about it, I, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. I think the the thing about that one was I wasn't used to winning yet. I'd never been in that position before. And of course, when it's your second time around or you've won a major title previously, you always feel more confident in that position because you've got that past experience to fall back on. Um, you know, no two experiences are alike, of course, but you just feel a bit more comfortable in that position because you've lived it previously. You've lived your own emotions previously. Whereas at that time, in that match in 2006 against Thierry, I was only guessing really the best things I needed to do. There was no, you know, I just was guessing about the best thing I, as I knew how and the tools that many coaches had given me and I'd learned myself. But then, of course, the next time you get in that position, whether if it's a world championship final, you're a bit calmer in that situation and, that doesn't mean you're going to win in that position, yeah. like I say, but you definitely feel like you know how to process it a lot better for sure. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I just wanted to you know, sort of ask you, I think that, you know, 2006, and as you uh, mentioned there, uh, you weren't a favorite to uh, to win that British Open, but you, you'd you won the previous event and you, you listed off all the names that uh, Thierry could have played uh, leading up to that match. I mean, there had to have been at that time during that generation, at least eight guys who were competing for, you know, titles on a, a at every event. Uh, I could be maybe off with that, but, you know, you had yourself, you had Thierry, JP, Peter, White, Palmer, uh probably missing out of Shabana, um, Beach Hill, yeah, Beach uh, Hill. All, all those guys, yeah. Willstrup even uh, coming Willstrup. in. When I, I think when I got into the top 10 for the first time, you know, you looked above you in the list and, you know, there was, um, you know, Linku, Palmer, Beach Hill, Nickel, Power, Shabana, White, um, Willstrup and Gaultier coming up alongside me there or thereabouts. So, you know, you're kind of thinking, how do I go up? One more spot, never mind. You know, never. The first time I qualified for the World Series finals, uh, the top eight event, I had a pool with nickel, power, and white. And I was okay. Yeah, that, I was, that sounds like. I mean, that, how much fun? I mean, that, I mean, obviously, I was like, how am I supposed to win? How am I supposed to win the game? Never mind the match. You know, it was it was very um, daunting, but I. I truly believe, you know, Mohammed says a similar thing about him being exposed to the later era, kind of the era that I was in pr predominantly with, you know, Shabana and Gaultier and, and Wilstrom Rami. Uh, he talks about sort of the advantages that it gained for him a lot, doesn't he? He talks about that literally all the time. And I feel um, exactly the same about that era. You know, I think if I'd have come up to the top 10 two or three years later, I wouldn't have been exposed to Nickel and Power and Palmer and Linku in, in anywhere near the same way. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is it is one thing playing them when they're dropping off uh, and they're past their peak, but I mean playing them when they're still somewhere close to their peak. That's yeah. what I really mean because that's the time when you really learn and there were so many contrasting personalities in there at that time, so many different styles of play. So unreal, you know, I didn't just play a power once or twice. I played him six or seven, eight, nine times, you know. So what, you know, incredible experience. 
Yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, I mean, uh, during that period, who were the players? I mean, out of all of them, uh, or even someone, someone else. I mean, there were so many uh, talented guys, and and it was so competitive back then. Who were the players that perhaps uh, you felt gave you sort of the most trouble? You know, in terms of being able to impose your own game, like you, maybe someone who you felt, geez, this is going to be uh, tricky for me to, you know, to get my footing uh, out there. Was there anyone yeah. in particular uh, that comes to mind? You know, the, the top two at that time when I was coming up were Power and Nickel, you know, so contrasting. You know, I was very lucky that Peter changed over to England at that time. And, uh-huh. you know, I learned so much from him in terms of his professionalism and all those little details that he paid attention to with his body and his preparation every day. I learned so much from that. Uh, them playing him. You never think he was. Ne- he, he didn't feel like he was necessarily hard to play, Peter. In that you felt like you were in every rally when you were up there. You know, if you were good enough to be on an England squad with Peter, you were good enough to be in every rally with the with him. The problem was you didn't win many of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell us. Um, what, I was gonna. It came to mind, like Peter, when you watch him play, it's just so fundamentally very, very good. But in that way, it's not complicated, right? Yeah, I remember playing him in the Commonwealth Games semi-final. I'd beaten James in the in the quarters and played Peter when he when he won it down in Australia. Beat Palmer in the final, and he was just in amazing form. And I lost to him three one in the semis in the last two games. So I think it was to nine at that point, English to nine. I lost nine five nine five, and and felt like I was really in the game. That it, it you know, but this but it was kind of you look at the score. I was like nine five nine four or whatever, and you're thinking. Well, it's not actually that close, but I was always there or thereabouts in every rally. I never felt like he was dominating me, but you know, you had to earn every last point that you got against him, particularly at English scoring, of course. Yeah. Um, power was obviously a bit different. I, I kind of suffered a, a couple more hammerings at the at the hands of power where mm. you kind of didn't know where the ball was going and he just took you apart. Um I also managed to sneak a couple of wins in against him at the back end where I just kind of was was a little bit dogged and, and stuck in and, and, you know, and hung in and didn't kind of, you know, disappear. And I was pretty fit and determined. And I managed to beat him 3-2 a couple of times where he kind of looked like he was fed up with it in the end. And he just wanted me to disappear, kind of, you know, which gave me great pleasure, especially when... He beat me in 25 minutes in front of all my friends and family in Sheffield one time and embarrassed me heavily. So, you know, they, they were completely different. I never felt like I suffered a complete hammering at the hands of Peter. However, I couldn't beat him easily either. Uh, well, I couldn't beat any of them easily, but, you know, they were completely different. Shibano once said about the difference between being hard to play and hard to beat. And that was kind of nickel and power in a in a nutshell. I'll 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 leave the viewers, the listeners, to work out which one I mean by both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was. I mean, whenever I saw, especially sort of toward when when you were starting to make inroads into the top five and, and number when you got to the top. Uh, but I always felt that you you always looked fairly confident out there when you played Jonathan at that time. Uh, uh, what I mean by that is like some people just sort of. You know, when Jonathan gets on a roll, it's just it's game over. But but you just kind of hung in. You were able to hang in there. And like you said, be dogged. And I think that uh, that's what Peter did well against Jonathan, too. 
Yeah, I think I took I took what Peter had done quite well against him, but you know, like I said, he he also took some hammerings, you know. Mm. So I certainly don't want the headline to be, "Oh, Nick found playing power easy." It was far oh, from no. that. <laughs> I'm just saying that I snuck a couple of wins in there. That's all. He's still yeah, yeah. plenty. Don't worry. Um, I think I think my favorite power uh, Matthew uh, story, and I think I brought it up the last <laughs> time, was where where he accused you of wiping the ball on your shirt. Do you remember? Oh that? yeah. There was a couple of good ones. He accused me of wiping the ball, which obviously was one of definitely one of Jonathan's sort of dramatic uh, moments. But the other one was in Cairo, where I kind of had a little bit. It's my first time in Cairo, and I had a bit of uh, upset stomach when I was playing him, and I may or may not have dropped one on the court during the rally, and he kind of stopped and asked for a let and uh, accused me, and I was of course, I of course just went, "What are you talking about? I don't know what you mean." So there was definitely, uh, there was definitely a, 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 there was always you were never far from a kind of a funny moment around Jonathan. Absolutely, yeah. Has that ever uh, do? Uh, what would a referee? Uh, what's the the ruling on that? I mean, uh, I know it's happened a couple times socially <laughs> in my, in my uh, club, where you know. I was like, well, we were in the middle of the pyramids. You know, so I was, I you know, it was, it was open air, and I was like, what are you talking about? You know. And he was, I think he was trying to invite the ref down to, to <laughs> smell for himself. Which, yeah. yeah. Did he get away? I mean, Jonathan was... I think I won the point. The envelope think, a let's bit. Just leave it at that. I think I won the point there. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Right. Now, uh, but, uh, no, I wouldn't recommend it. It's not something that I've done before or since. It was, it was, <laughs> it was purely one of those things. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that happens. It must happen a fair bit, actually. <laughs> but uh, accidentally, uh, I'm... In of course, you get a bit too deep into that lunge or whatever, you know. Yeah. Okay. I think we've lost the plot here a bit, but uh, let's. Get... <laughs> uh, let's. I'd love to talk uh, just uh, before we get into the U.S. Open stuff, uh, Nick. Uh, a little bit about um, about Rami and and you had some tremendous matches against Rami. Unfortunately, as we all know, he had to uh, give up the game far too early. But uh, I mean, he's a guy that. Uh, I think we, you know, we we haven't seen anyone like him before, or probably we, we won't since. And just in not only the talent, but you know, the way he approached the game, the way he played the game on court, uh, he was never disrespectful. Never really, I never saw him arguing with referees. If he did, it was sort of very pleasant to to watch. Um, talk about your your matches with him, the the and what it was like to play him, and what a talent uh, he was. Yeah, he's just unique, you know. Um, and I think the thing is that is that, you know, that's the definition of that word, right? There's only one of them or very few of them. And uh, he, um, he, I think he changed squash in many ways. I think, you know, the way that the game was always seen as, you know, you hit your back corners first and you try not to make too many errors and, and everything and he made it I tell my players today he made it acceptable to hit five or six errors a game but back yourself to hit eight or nine winners and you know as long as you're in a positive ratio it doesn't kind of matter and he he just sort of changed that mindset you know we were were always looking at the stats with England squash and you know you if you hit more than three errors a game you were always you know that was always frowned upon and and then Rami came along and, like I say, made five, six errors a game, but was winning. And it kind of made the stat- statisticians and the analysts sort of scratch their heads. And 
obviously made us players scratch our heads because there was no patterns. Everything happened at a slightly faster pace. Um, but I think it helped everyone raise their standards. You know, it certainly raised the way that I trained, the intensity that I trained at. And, and I think that I became a better player. I'm sure James, Greg would, would agree because of, of, of those rivalries. Without, you know, I, I don't think there's, in my mind, there's not a doubt in, in, about that. What was uh, his best attribute as a player? I mean, what, what, I mean, he pretty much had everything, but uh, was it his uh, sort of his, his ability just to play winners from that with that very short backswing on the the backhand and forehand side? Yeah, it's not. It wasn't just you know. That's quite often the biggest things are you know not always the obvious one that the eye can see. Obviously, everyone could see that backhand, and you know the way he swatted at that sort of cross court nick was very infuriating to play but was also his, his you know his awareness and his understanding of of the space and and court coverage it was also a fantastic mover the pace that he, he got onto the ball um you know but probably all over and above all that it was the pace that he played at so when you played Rami the pace of the game was always 5% higher than against any other player mm. You know, and that was probably not that obvious to the naked eye because it wasn't kind of a, a Gaultier explosivity that's really obvious. It wasn't a Rodriguez running around like you can see how fast he is. You know, Rami's, it was all quite subtle, but combination of his movement, how early he saw the ball, the shortness of his backswing, everything just happened a split second quicker than against anyone else. So therefore you had a split second less time to think. Um, you know, I always look back on it. I don't think it was a coincidence that my better results against him happened when I played him more recently. Uh, when I hadn't played him for say a summer or for a, a, long, a longer period when he'd been out injured or something like that, I always found it a struggle against him because like I said, it was just unique. So it was a bit of a shock to the system, no matter how well you felt like you prepared for it. Whereas when I played in the previous tournament or something, I always felt like I was better prepared because nothing prepares you like the real thing. Yeah. Um, and that's not always to say that you won, but that was always when I had felt like I was in there from the word go against him. Yeah, it must have been uh, incredible uh, to, to have had that experience, to play him, to play that generation before and to get to play him, and then also the Sherbaggy, who's now at the uh, the end of his soon to be at the end. Uh, I'm sure he's got a few more years left. But uh, I mean, those those matches, you know, that that Mohammed and Rami had, they had the two five setters, didn't they? That wow. are always talked about in up there in some of the best matches. I mean, the intensity never relented for five games, not for one rally, not for one shot, not for one second. It was just ferocious and obviously they they come at that um in slightly different ways obviously Mohammed was sort of someone more who threw the kitchen sink at it um trying to volley and, and but Rami he he did it in a slightly different way he didn't necessarily look like he was in as you know the, the, as gym shape as say some of the players do but yeah. he could tire someone out in a you know, in a, in 20 minutes if they weren't used to playing it. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, he seemed to do okay in five-game matches as well, though. Oh, yeah, because you you were the one doing most of the work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He had, he, he, had, he had the other person doing the majority of the fair share, you know, So so which is a testament to how good he was. Yeah. Uh, well, Nick, uh, I want to ask you, I uh, want to get into the U.S. Open a bit now. To, we're in the eve of, of that event, I think. And um, you uh, that, that's one event that, that obviously you've won all all the uh, the majors, but you won that one once, I think, didn't you? Yeah, I think 2007. I think um, a year after that British Open, we discussed, again, probably wasn't a serial winner at that time. Um, and that was maybe sort of one stepping stone along the way to probably maybe by 2000 and sort of nine ten, where I started to become more of a regular sort of fixture in the late stages. But that one again was a little bit out of the blue, but um, you know, you don't win a US Open without beating some good players. I think I actually beat Rami in the Linko in the quarters of that one, Rami in the semis and Jimbo in the final. So okay. yes, some decent players. Yeah, yeah, always, always. Uh, I mean, to get to that final and win that, you'd have to uh, have it. It would be, always be a tough draw. But this year, uh, defending champ is Diego Elias, and uh, uh, he's definitely got to be. He's definitely uh, a favorite to get to the final. Uh, but for me, uh, in my estimation, Ali's just on such a run of form. Um, he's got the tougher road uh, to the final. I guess he he has to play Gawad straight straight away. Uh, and Diego, I don't think he has to face anyone difficult until the uh, the semis, unless uh, Marwan shows up. I think Marwan's on his side. And... Well, they're all, everyone's difficult, for to, first of all. But yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. I mean, obviously, you know, Farag straight into Gawad is, you know, pretty, is intense. Um, I saw today that Goha was out, which uh, is obviously mm. a big shame. So there'll be a kind of a different champion, a new champion in the women's side. And she's won, Diego, she's won three in a row, hasn't she? Yeah. yeah, so she obviously likes it there. And I don't know. I, I'm never a big fan. I've always said I'm never a huge fan of the, the sort of the only, the eight, the way the draws are done. You know, I like it to say, look, if, if eight people are going to get a bye, for me, that should be the top eight. And then the rest of them play off and then you move in. It should, to me, I like it a bit more structured. I'm a, I like structure. I like so organization. What is it about the draw the way it is now? Uh, is, so just like, because. Just this if, randomness of, uh, of Ali playing Gawad right away. Just, so, yeah, so I think kind of it's 16 people go through, but the fact that Gawad and Farag can play as their first match, I would think that if you're, you know, outside. 16 then you should be playing a, a playing match and then you know that that Gawad and Farag shouldn't be able to play until the third round in in my book you know second round is too early you know you see it every tournament you know there was making be Cole and Qatar and there's there's one every tournament and they say that that's good you know and I understand the reasons for that just a personal thing I prefer it to be seeded properly yeah uh, like or, organized seeding um well, that's sure, just my uh, and Ali would prefer that right now as well. Uh, yeah, uh, but I get it, you know. But you're, it always throws up a few things that you feel are a bit on, you know, a bit unfair. You can be nine in the world and you can draw the number one seed first round, which seems a bit, bit harsh to me. I've always thought that, but that's the way they do it. And who am I to argue with that? They, um, um, there's been some really good events recently and, and yeah. you know, one of the plus points about the way that they do it is that you do get some interesting second round matchups. So, you know, there's obviously a big reason behind that. 
Yeah, there's. Uh, I mean, the the draw actually looks quite good with the the play in matches the way they they are now. I mean, you've got uh, you've got a guy like uh, Timmy Brownell. I think he's playing uh, the Jet, uh, Dimitri Steinman in the first round. And Timmy, he was on the podcast uh, about a year or so ago, and he told me a fan. I don't know if, if I'm supposed to tell this story. I think he told me off, uh, but I'll, I'll tell I'll tell it anyway. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I don't think he'll mind, but he he was telling me that. Uh, during I forget which which event it was, but he had managed to beat Dimitri. And uh after the match, uh Steinman was just glaring at him for like an hour. Like uh, and he he didn't really oh, want really? to Yeah. <laughs> he, he didn't know what to do. <laughs> and uh but uh, I think they you know that's water under the bridge now. But uh I know what I'd have done. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah that, that'll be a good first round match uh i mean obviously timmy's been he's had a few decent wins uh over yeah i picked guys. him Played i well. picked him out as one to watch for the season i think he, you know he's a really quirky player i'm always fascinated by these players who seem like they don't need rhythm to play their best because i know you know just talking about rami you know, he was unbelievable at breaking his opponent's rhythm constantly. I was always someone who liked to train at rhythm. Mm. I felt like I played my best at rhythm. And then, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd maybe try and break it from there. But these players, I tell you, I'm always fascinated at um, how they perform, where it, it seems from the, the observer that it's kind of a little bit random. I'm sure yeah, it's yeah. not in their mind. But, you know, just from the outside, and, and especially when players have success, with that you know there's definitely sort of like it upsets opponents and it's it's not an easy thing to sort of coach it probably comes a lot from the individual sort of personality and any quirkiness that may or may not be there and yeah I'm always fascinated by those you know I think like Yusuf Ibrahim's another player like that who I, I yeah, watch I mean, the most to me oh. Most electrifying guy out there. Every time I, every match against a, a top level player, it, it's a, you got to watch it. I mean, he's just hundred so percent. And you know, it's good to see him back fully fit because I think he wasn't quite fit. But he fired on all cylinders for a big part sort of last season. But yeah, I, I'm just really fascinated because it's a, it's completely chalk and cheese sort of how I think about the game and how I sort of prepare and. <laughs> Really yeah. fascinating from a coaching point of view to sort of say, you know, how do I bring that unpredictability into a player without it affecting them, right? Because obviously, I'm, my thought process is, well, if you're a little bit unpredictable, then what happens if it goes wrong? What have I got to fall back on in terms of my base and my basics and all of that? But yeah, so yeah, I'm always I'm always fascinated by that that type of a player. And Steinman's probably another of those type of players too. So those two Simon take Herbert, against uh, each other. Simon. Steinman. Steinman. Oh, Steinman. Sorry. Yeah. Steinman. Yeah. Steinman's yeah. another sort of those players, those random players. They, you know, I'm always, I'm always intrigued how they can match up a little bit of consistency to what they actually do. It's, it's, it's a fun, it's a fun sort of recipe. Mm. Yeah. Ibrahim is a, is a guy like I, I just don't, he's so quick as well. Like he just, the way he moves into the front court, gets balls back, goes for he, uh He's just every every point is like all he goes. It just seems like he's going all out on every point in, in the way that he plays the game, and it's just. So I mean his his match with Mohammed in Qatar was incredible. Yeah. You know how Mohammed 
how Mohammed won that match. Uh, well, I know how he won that match because I know Mohammed, but yeah. the willpower that he showed to sort of win that match was incredible. Oh, yeah, 100%. A couple of other guys on the men's side as well. Um, uh, Ali Abu and he's a guy that I thought uh, sort of came out of last season looking very good. And uh, he's, he's, got very, he's fast, he's quick, uh, he's got nice fundamentals, good hands. Um, and he's he has a pretty decent draw there early on, if you can get through. Is he a guy uh, uh, that you, uh, you rate? 100%, yeah. I know he's... Uh... You know, he's a little bit more, you know, I can relate to him perhaps a little bit more. He looks like he likes his things in order. He mm. looks like he's someone who would put his racket bag down and his drinks bottle at right angles, you know, and, and make sure that everything in his bag, I can imagine his sort of, you know, brain being very organised and his, his racket bag being a reflection of that. On Unlike George Parker in between games, it looks like a, a grenade went off in his racket bag, sort of in, in his corner between games. So... Yeah, that um, Alain, and he, he seems like his head's very much screwed on, intelligent guy. And um, mm. yeah, he's, Ivy he, League he's, guy. Ivy League guy. Well, that's what it must be, you see. Yeah. That's it. Ibra- <laughs> Ibrahim Farag. Kruin. Uh, Alain and Kruin. Yeah. Sobe, obviously. Sobe's Gina. Yeah. yeah, they're everywhere now. So Everybody they're taking over. Yeah. I know. Makes me wish I'd have had an education and then I could have been de- decent. <laughs> well you went through the school of uh, what do they say the school of hard knocks right school of hard knocks something yeah. like that yeah yeah uh just in terms of on the women's side uh, nick just to go there for for a little bit uh obviously hanya's uh, uh Cervini seated one hanya's seated two hanya's side of the draw is quite intriguing because she's got uh, uh amanda sobe there and also uh joelle king i think sobe plays uh olivia um blatchford Fine in the first round and yeah. well, second round match, but uh, Sobe's been playing really well of late, and she's uh, I like watching her play. I mean, she she's she's all she's another quirky type of player. And then you have on the bottom or on the uh, on Sherbini's side, you've got um, Norel Taya. I mean, she just came coming off a, a big win in Houston, beating uh, Sobe, and she's to me she could beat any of those girls when she's when she's on. And I'm not sure how fit she is. She she must be quite fit now to have uh, taken out uh, Sobe in Houston. So how how do you see things uh, there on the women's side? Because it's quite intriguing, although unfortunate that uh, Gohar won't be going for four in a row. Yeah, I think so. In the men in the men's side, what you've got is you've got a top five, and you obviously a Sal's missing, but you've got a top five who all of which can win the event. You've got Mohammed. You've got. Um, a sal on, on on a normal tournament day. You've got Paul, you've got Diego, and you've got Ali. In the girls, you've got the top three. You've got Nor Shabini, you've got Nor Angohan, you've got Hania. That's not to say none of the others can win, but over the recent past, you've got those groups of people who sort of separated themselves as being tournament. I'm talking platinum, platinum event winners, and. You know, in the men's, you've had Joel Makins come through or Marwan's come through or, or whoever, Gawad's come through, but they've upset the seedings, but they've not gone on to win the tournament. And I think that it's about time, you know, that someone, you know, Amanda's been knocking on the door playing fantastically. 
Joelle's been there and thereabouts. Obviously, she's into her mid-30s now. You know, um, El Tayeb's coming back. It's about time we maybe got a fourth or a fifth person who shows that they can actually win a platinum event because whilst everyone can be anyone, you know, Hania had a couple of earlier losses in a couple of tournaments. They can all be upset on their day, but none of those people have, there's a completely different thing to then go beat Hania in the second round and then go on and win the tournament. Yeah. That's a completely, they're two completely different things. And so far you'd be a brave person to bet against anyone outside of that five in the men's and the three in the women's to win the event. Um, with Noran being out, of course, that kind of then leaves a little bit of a gap for someone to kind of potentially sneak through and maybe get to the, a semi-final without having to have beaten one of those top three. So maybe this is an opportunity, uh, Amanda on home soil, somewhere she knows very well to sort of make that final breakthrough because she's been knocking on the door for a while. And, it, you know, it's probably... Um, about she's probably about the right age now, really, to 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 get a first major win. Yeah, oh, definitely, she's tough too. I mean, she she embraces these opportunities, and and she has a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a saw in her in her post match celebrations. I, I think she hung up the phone on uh, someone. Did, yeah, I was that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Uh, but uh, now I'm always a bit skeptical on things like that. When when it maybe did you ever do anything like, like that? that's going to come back to haunt you. Never done anything like that. Huh? Well, I've always been. It's like it's like when you ask a player, "Are you playing well?" They'll never go, "Yeah, yeah, I'm playing brilliantly." They will always play it down. They'll always go, "Yeah, yeah, I'm playing okay." Mm. You know, and to me, doing something flamboyant like that is a surefire way for you to slip up the next day because you've just yeah. kind of got a little bit. And that was my mentality. Everyone else is fine. But what I would like to see is someone doing that when they win the tournament, not when they <laughs> win the quarterfinal. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Exactly. Um, now, um, let's move on just quickly because I know you've got to, you've got to go pick up the young ones uh, there soon. Um uh Jamie Maddox. Uh I just I took a month off of the podcast took a little bit of a break. Jamie came on. He was my first uh, guest uh, recently, and uh, we we spoke a lot about other things. Uh, but I did ask him about Mustafa Asal, and he's a huge uh, Asal supporter. And uh, you know, I brought up is the, he? The, the, oh, is he? Yeah, you never, you never, you yeah. never guess. <laughs> yeah so i brought up all the uh all the the, the different suspensions and, and my take on it is yes he deserves to be suspended for all of those things uh but i'm not a hater and uh you know i hope he does learn something and i hope he's you know making inroads with uh mohammed alkai and uh james wilstrup but uh just want to get uh your thoughts on on the suspensions uh were they Deserved, and what do you think uh, of Asal's chances of coming back uh, and making inroads and improving in those areas? Oh, yeah, tough, tough one. I think first of all, I think you know Jamie needs to be commended on what he's built in squash stories. First things first, I think what a great community. Um, uh, I think it could be improved if he let people have their opinion on a cell that differs from his because that's ultimately what a community and a forum is for 
that you know you don't necessarily have to be banned or not be allowed to speak if you disagree with the sort of the um the forum master or whatever the 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 correct phrase is uh-huh. yeah um <laughs> so i think that that, that improved the actual so that you could get both because he is divisive of course he is mm. some people he's like marmite isn't he some people love him other people hate him there's not many people who sit on the fence you're literally one way or the other and i think it's more powerful if you let that play out as long as people are not getting personal or any you know like bad language or anything like that i think that would make that more sort of um constructive personally but i don't run it so that's not uh, that's not my decision um Honest, Alex, I mean, certainly um, it's a big call, isn't it? Like coming over here, uh, certainly, and doing what he's doing with Lee Drew on the refereeing side and, and with James and certainly being as public about it as he has. You know, certainly if it were me, I would have been thinking about maybe doing that quietly behind closed doors because that um, has put a little bit of pressure on every party now. You know, there's a lot of reputations on the line there and, you know, fingers crossed for all of them um, that it works out quite well. Um, that might be. Do you think? Do you think that was by design? I mean, I, I know that 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 their side. I mean, they feel you know behind, they they won't say it, but you know they feel hard done by. Uh, so may, maybe in a way they they want to uh, to do possibly. It. Yeah, I see that. I just, I think that sort of if all eyes weren't on it before, they certainly will be now, mm. uh, and. Yeah, there's, you know, there's, uh, and I know even from the other side, there's a lot of players who are, are questioning sort of PSAs involved. Obviously, PSA giving Mustafa access to Lee Drew. You know, they, what happens now if Mustafa goes on and gets all the refereeing decisions because he's figured out how to play the system, as it were? Well, then can all the other players say, well, I want a one on one masterclass with Lee Drew about how to get all the refereeing decisions in my favour now. So it's a very, they've got to be very careful with how they yeah. tread the line on this one. You know, I don't remember Jonathan Power or David Palmer ever getting a coaching masterclass from Roy Gingell or John Mazzarella or Jack Graham Allen. Waters. Graham Waters or Jack Allen. I don't remember. This is completely uncharted territory we're going into now that a player, and don't forget Lee Drew's a coach in his own right too, a very good one, a very successful one. But as far as I understand it, he's going to him for the, to understand the referees and the rules. So, you know, if I was playing and I was one of Mustafa's rivals, I'd be saying, well, I leave no stone unturned. Can I get a one-on-one masterclass with Lee Drew about what I need to do as well? And then you've got 620 is there, is Lee, sorry, members. Is, is Lee or is the PSA, the officiating side of it, are they not uh, offering this up to players Anyway, well, wouldn't they offer? I'm not sure how. I'm not sure how 600 PSA members could possibly fit into Lee Drew or you know anyone's calendar. So I understand that it's got to perhaps a point with Mustafa that the intervention was needed. I'm I'm just saying that I know how I would be mm. possibly looking at this if I was playing. Going well, is is that could that be classed now as a as an advantage when he comes back? Yes, he's had disadvantages. He's, he's been out. Has he deserved that? Has he not? We could talk about that all day. But, yeah, you know, the, we're, we're un- in uncharted waters now. So I think that it'd be interesting for sure as to how it pans out. And just in terms of 
you know, Mustafa and the issues that he has, obviously, uh, for me anyways, the big one was the, the Mezen Hisham one where he, you know, he grabbed his arm or whatever, uh, during, in the middle of the rally, uh, as he was coming through his movement issues, uh, you know, he has to work on those, but just in, uh, from, from your side of it, uh, how do you view, uh, all of these issues that, that, uh, assault, well, the suspensions that he's been levied, uh, what what what's your take on on that? I think I don't know if you've read J- Jonah. I love reading Jonah. Jonah is just mm. the best spoken squash person of all time. He could be in a room of a thousand people and they'd all stop talking if Jonah started to speak. And I love reading his column. He has such wit and humour, but also he, then when he gets serious, you go great point. And and what he said about Mustafa was, you cannot forget that whilst they're trying to clean it up and clean these matches up, that squash is a gladiatorial sport and you've got two gladiators in the, sharing the same space and fighting, indeed, for the same space. And great champions of the past, like, you know, your Palmers, and, and you know, they n- knew a little bit about the dark arts too, you know, and he actually named myself, he actually named Jimbo. You know, James is often referred to as a gentleman massively so off-court, but on-court, James Wilstrop massively knew how to take his space. Mm, you yeah. know, he's a big guy anyway, but there's no two ways about it, you know. Yeah, Rodriguez Chicago. wanted to punch him that time in Chicago. They nearly came to blows, <laughs> you know. It's sorry, I, sorry, I interrupted. What Who? What, what was that? Rod, there was that match with Rodriguez in oh, Chicago yeah. when they nearly came to blows. And, mm. you know, it wasn't as common, of course, but, but all of these great players, Rami Ashour, Mohamed El Shabagi, they all know how to take their space on the court. Even Ali Farag, who's quite a slight guy, he knows when to kind of take the bit more space and keep his back leg on the tee. He knows when to kind of um, delay a little bit and kind of take the stroke. Or they, you know, and that's it's not. And that, what Jonah's saying is, there's always a fine line between you know what if Mustafa comes back now the cleanest player on the, in the world, but then loses in the second round every time, then that's no good to him. That's essentially what he's saying. So you've still got to remember that, yes, you've got to be aggressive. You've still got to take the space around the middle, but we've got to cut out all the shenanigans like grabbing someone's racket and yeah. 300 decisions a match and all of that. But in terms of taking your space, and it's a physical game, it's got a total, as Jonah quite rightly says, and I couldn't agree more. Yeah, 100%. I, I agree there. If he can clean that, you know, all that other stuff up. But he, I mean, he's so, have you ever seen anyone as explosive as him in terms of, you know, moving into the front court? Like the the way he just sort of, that explosive uh, lunge that he has. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? Um, you know, I think, you know, Mohammed when he first came on the scene, is probably the closest thing I've seen um, for sure. But yeah, incredible. And the boys tell me it's not unbelievable. He's not unbelievable in the gym either. So it's pure. It must be purely kind of. Yeah. It must be purely kind of squash specific. His is, you know, the way that his body's related. It's it's amazing. Mm. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, finally, uh, Nick, uh, uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, and you might have seen this on Twitter, uh, or X as it's called now, X. Uh, no, Novak uh, Djokovic. He posted a uh, a tweet. It was kind of strange. He said that outside the top 400 players in tennis, they're unable to earn a living wage on the tour. 
right? So they're not able to, you know, to earn a living, basically. Where would you say that line is in terms of, you know, on, on the PSA tour? I mean, I, I'm thinking, like, is it 20? To, to be able to earn a living with, with a... With question. A good question. Yeah. yeah, good question. I couldn't, I couldn't possibly tell you. I know the prize money's come on since my time for sure. And, you know, the girls' sides come up. More people can be professional. And um, where that line is, tough one, because you might have somebody who's the Finnish number one who gets a bit of support, but they're ranked 120. And so, therefore, they can play. And they get a bit of fun. I don't yeah. know. So, it, it's probably difficult to say for sure. But you'd hope you'd hope that everyone who was on the main tour at least was. Um, and you'd hope that the guys, you know, you'd hope, wouldn't you, going forward that the top 100 minimum would be able to. Um, but I'm not sure that is the case. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a tricky one, isn't it? And I think it speaks to things that squash players tend to to do to supplement their incomes, right? Because they go out, they might play three or four league matches uh, yeah, there's the leagues, uh, and some people do a bit of coaching on the side, and obviously there's the sponsorship side. You know, I'm not sure where that line is drawn with tennis players in terms of because they always travel with an on, more of an entourage in terms of you know I don't know at what ranking you kind of stop adding those expenses to it because some of that's an investment, right? If you feel like by taking a coach to this tournament or a, a trainer to this tournament that that's going to cost me more but I'm increasing my chances of winning because I'm I'm doing that so there's there's a sometimes kind of a, a bit where the rubber meets the road right where you know I remember me and Laura decided that at one point we're going to pay for DP to come to all the majors because we had more of a chance of winning if he was there and it cost us but it was worth it because we had more of a chance of winning so I think tennis players are able to often make those sort of decisions perhaps that squash players weren't as well and, and they're factoring those things into earning a living aren't they yeah absolutely yeah well uh, like you said I mean the uh, money on the women's side and the men's side has gone up uh, recently I think what is it the the Walton family right they Walter uh, yeah, yeah Mark Walter, Walter family they uh, they yeah. just invested a significant amount into the game so that that bodes well well Nick uh when are you in Dubai again because the last time you were here, uh, I was supposed to. Uh, I had a tea time booked, and you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, Kanzi. Kanzi had me working hard at the Flying Dad. Oh, yeah. Brilliant program that she's building there. And then, you know, the day, the downtime, the kids had me busy by the pool, Jerry. But next time for sure. Wild Wadi, right? The Wild kids Wadi had me busy at the Atlantis Water Park. It was yeah, but. We'll um we'll definitely look. That's it's definitely not something that I would um say no to if it, the opportunity came up again for sure. <laughs> yeah, one hundred percent. Well, uh, well, Nick, all the best. Thanks, to you. Uh, take care and uh, enjoy your weekend. You too. Take care, Jerry. Well, many thanks to Nick Matthew for that, and I truly, truly hope that he was not late picking up the young ones uh, from school. Now, uh, now during the uh, the podcast, Nick uh, mentioned Declan James, and uh, coincidentally, I reached out to to, De- to Declan uh, maybe I think only a few hours before Nick and I spoke, uh, be- simply because I haven't seen uh, Declan on the PSA tour for quite some time, but he's posted a few uh some footage of his training in which he's looked very very good looked fit so reached out to him to see how things are, were going and uh asked him if he wanted to come on the pod and he 
agreed. So we're going to do that in the next couple of days before he heads to Qatar uh, on Monday to play his first event since uh, the nasty Achilles injury that uh, Nick mentioned uh, uh, on the podcast. So we have that upcoming on the pod and we've got plenty more to look forward to as well. Lots of great things lined up. So stay tuned for that. Keep uh, the comments coming. Really uh, appreciate those. The good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, keep them coming. You can uh, contact me on any social media platform. Please share the podcast as well with your friends within your squash community at your club. I really would appreciate that as well. And finally, enjoy your squash. Enjoy the U.S. Open coming up starting, uh, I think, uh, when this episode drops. should be later in the day. And, uh, yeah, enjoy that. And we'll be talking to you very soon. Goodbye now.